1: And other things about political and social issues going on around the world, both past, present, and future, which will hopefully make you think.
2: Hi, Ed. Will we continue to celebrate what Martin Luther King has asked us to do? Or will we once will we one day be able to celebrate because we have done what he has asked? There will be equality in economics, there will be equality in socialism, and there will be equality in humanity. Of course, that's what Martin Luther King has asked us to do. So, will we continue to celebrate? What he has asked us to do? Or will one day we actually celebrate because we have done what he has asked? There will be social justice. There will be equality in finances. There will be social equality. And last but not least, there will be human equality. I mean, is it me? Is it me? Because our celebrations of what he has asked us to do gets bigger and bigger each year, and he deserves that celebration. But when are we going to celebrate the fact that we have done what he has asked? And there will be equality in economics. There will be social equality. And there will be human equality. Will we ever get to that place? Because that is the true celebration. Not of what his dream has asked us to do, but what we have done in those fields, especially social economics and human equality and justice for all. Will we ever celebrate that aspect of the dream or will we continue to live the nightmare? That's all I'm saying. Because to me, being able to drink out of a water fountain in 2012 really isn't the issue. And it's not something that we should be still celebrating. Peace.
3: I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I just want to do God's will. I join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five, score years ago, great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as the great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been steered in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak, end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty, in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society, and finds himself in exile in his own land. So we've come here today to dramatize the shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note. To which every American was to fall out. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note. Insofar as our citizens of color are concerned, instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check. A check which has come back marked insufficient funds. To remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time. From the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood, now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. And those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content, will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds, of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence again and again we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force the marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people for many of our white brothers as evidenced by their presence here today have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied. As long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one, we can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed let us not wallow in the valley of despair I say to you today my friend so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow I still have a dream country tears of thee, sweet land of liberty of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrims' pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true, so let freedom ring, from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring, from the mighty mountains of New York,
4: Thank you so much. I am still fired up and ready to go. Thank you. Thank you. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate Senator Clinton on a hard-fought victory here in New Hampshire. She did an outstanding job. Give her a big round of applause. A few weeks ago, no one imagined that we'd have accomplished what we did here tonight in New Hampshire. No one could have imagined it. For most of this campaign, we were far behind. We always knew our climb would be steep. But in record numbers, you came out, and you spoke up for change. And with your voices and your votes, you made it clear that at this moment, in this election, there is something happening in America. There is something happening when men and women in Des Moines and Davenport, in Lebanon and Concord, come out in the snows of January to wait in lines that stretch block after block because they believe in what this country can be. There is something happening. There's something happening when Americans who are young in age and in spirit, who've never participated in politics before, turn out in numbers we have never seen because they know in their hearts that this time must be different. something happening when people vote not just for party that they belong to, but the votes, the hopes that they hold in common. That whether we are rich or poor, black or white, Latino or Asian, whether we hail from Iowa or New Hampshire, Nevada or South Carolina, we are ready to take this country in a fundamentally new direction. That's what's happening in America right now. Change is what's happening in America. Tonight, all who put so much heart and soul and work into this campaign, you can be the new majority who can lead this nation out of a long political darkness. Democrats, independents, and Republicans who are tired of the division and distraction that has clouded Washington, who know that we can disagree without being disagreeable, who understand. <laughs> who understand that if we mobilize our voices to challenge the money and influence that stood in our way and challenge ourselves to reach for something better, there is no problem we cannot solve. There is no destiny that we cannot fulfill. Our new American majority can end the outrage of unaffordable, unavailable health care in our time. We can bring We can bring doctors and patients, workers and businesses, Democrats and Republicans together, and we can tell the drug and insurance industry that while they get a seat at the table, they don't get to buy every chair. Not this time. Not now. majority can end the tax breaks for corporations that ship our jobs overseas and put a middle-class tax cut in the pockets of working Americans who deserve it. We can stop sending our children to schools with corridors of shame and start putting them on a pathway to success. We can stop talking about how great teachers are and start rewarding them for their greatness by giving them more pay and more support. We can do this with our new majority. We can harness the ingenuity of farmers and scientists, citizens and entrepreneurs to free this nation from the tyranny of oil and save our planet from a point of no return. And when I am President of the United States, we will end this war in Iraq and bring our troops home. war in Iraq, we will bring our troops home. We will finish the job. We will finish the job against al Qaeda in Afghanistan. We will care for our veterans. We will restore our moral standing in the world. And we will never use 9-11 as a way to scare up votes, because it is not a tactic to win an election. It is a challenge that should unite America and the world against the common threats of the 21st century terrorism and nuclear weapons, climate change and poverty, genocide and disease. All of the candidates in this race share these goals. All of the candidates in this race have good ideas. And all are patriots who serve this country honorably. But the reason our campaign has always been different, the reason we began this improbable journey almost a year ago, is because it's not just about what I will do as President. It is also about what you, the people who love this country, the citizens of the United States of America can do to change it. That's what this election is all about. That's why tonight belongs to you. It belongs to the organizers and the volunteers and the staff who believed in this journey and rallied so many others to join the cause. We know the battle ahead will be long, but always remember that no matter what obstacles stand in our way, nothing can stand in the way of the power of millions of voices calling for change. We have been told we cannot do this by a chorus of cynics. And they will only grow louder and more dissonant in the weeks and months to come. We've been asked to pause for a reality check. We've been warned against offering the people of this nation false hope. But in the unlikely story that is America, there has never been anything false about hope. we have faced down impossible odds, when we've been told we're not ready, or that we shouldn't try, or that we can't, generations of Americans have responded with a simple creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. It was a creed written into the founding documents that declared the destiny of a nation. Yes we can. It was whispered by slaves and abolitionists as they blazed a trail towards freedom through the darkest of nights. Yes we can. It was sung by immigrants as they struck out from distant shores and pioneers who pushed westward against an unforgiving wilderness. Yes we can. It was the call of workers who organized, women who reached for the ballot, a president who chose the moon as our new frontier, and a king who took us to the mountaintop and pointed the way to the promised land. Yes, we can to justice and equality. We can to opportunity and prosperity. Yes, we can heal this nation. Yes, we can repair this world. Yes, we can. And so tomorrow, as we take the campaign South and West, as we learn that the struggles of the textile workers in Spartanburg are not so different than the plight of the dishwasher in Las Vegas, that the hopes of the little girl who goes to the crumbling school in Dillon are the same as the dreams of the boy who learns on the streets of L.A. We will remember that there is something happening in America, that we are not as divided as our politics suggest, that we are one people, we are one nation, and together we will begin the next great chapter in the American story with three words that will ring from coast the coast from sea to shining sea. Yes we can. Thank you New Hampshire. Thank you.
1: Hey ladies and gentlemen this is St. Clinton. I just wanted to drop in real quick and say thank you for listening to this show. Whether you listen through iTunes Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Google+, Player FM, or any other way, I just want to say thank you, yeah.
5: The devil's the man. He'll do what he can. Make your life better. He'll write you that letter. He'll get you that job. To make you a snob To fill up your mind To make you go blind To reason, to care To love and to share To ignore those of pain in vain Their voices muffled Their bodies shuffled Into early graves Indentured slaves Ruled by the rich For speaking up with an empty cup, for asking for more, and then knocked to the floor. No disparity more charity feed those in need and we'll make you bleed we'll knock you away so you better do as we see you better wave our flag not that bloody rag work for naught sold and bought in their bloody pocket to fuel their bloody rocket smart they want you dumb to dance to their drum no free thinking He a
0: friend. Bagpuss gave
5: a big yawn and settled down to sleep. Hello, Moon. Anybody found? I will. One small step for a dog, but a great step for dog kind. Uh, what a love eternal phrase. I must remember to write it down when I get back. If I get back. This calm, serene awe sailing majestically among the myriad stars of the firmament, Perhaps this star, too, is home for somebody. Can we imagine the sort of people that might live on a star like this? Let us go very close. Let us look and listen very carefully. And perhaps we shall see. And hear. Listen.
2: Going to the moon. You have volunteer.
1: The Russian Soyuz proved to be the safest way to deliver people to space, and now with the shuttle retiring, it will be the only way.
0: So we pony up the cash, then have to ride on the hump with the backseat while the Ruskies take the wheel. Yo, yes. You know they're not gonna let us touch the radio they won't let us eat snacks or stop to use the bathroom, should have gone before we left. Use catheter. Since the earliest
3: time, man has imagined this moment. The moment when his fellow man would make the first journey to the moon. Now the time had come. In the sixth decade of the 20th century, the ancient dream was to become a reality. From uh, the point of view of the, of the long sweep of history, it, it almost seems inevitable that sooner or later humans will be going to Mars. We are a, uh, a species that naturally explores, and exploring our own solar system is obviously the next step once we've looked at the planets and we've gone to the moon, and Mars is the most logical next stop for us to visit. Well,
6: people, congratulations
5: on over a dozen new rocks. Astronauts in space five. Bankus gave a
6: big yawn and settled down to sleep. Roger that. Transmission terminated. King was a man of hope and faith, and he never gave up on either. He demonstrated this by loving those who persecuted him. Whenever he saw racial inequality or injustice, he saw an opportunity to love. Dr. Martin Luther King's fight for equality for all people
3: is one that endures to today and perhaps this is the measurement we in this
7: room need to use don't you think who are you you don't know don't tell me negro that's nothing what were you before the white man named you a negro and why don't you now know what your name was then and where were you and what did you have what was yours what language did you speak then what was your name it couldn't have been smith or jones or bunch or Powell. that wasn't your name they don't have those kind of names where you and i came from (laughs) no what was your name where did it go where did you lose it who took it and how did he take it what tongue did you speak how did the man take your tongue where is your history How did the man wipe out your history? How did the man, what did the man do to make you as dumb as you are right now?
6: surveillance of the Soviet military build-up on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Upon receiving the first preliminary hard information of this nature, last Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., I directed that our surveillance be stepped up. And having now confirmed and completed our evaluation of the evidence and our decision on a course of action, this government feels obliged to report this new crisis to you in fullest detail. The characteristic of these new missile sites indicate two distinct types of installations. Several of them include medium-range ballistic missiles capable of carrying a nuclear warhead for a distance of more than 1,000 nautical miles. Each of these missiles, in short, is capable of striking Washington, D.C., the Panama Canal, Cape Canaveral, Mexico City, or any other city in the southeastern part of the United States, in Central America, or in the Caribbean area. Additional sites not yet completed appear to be designed for intermediate range ballistic missiles, capable of traveling more than twice as far, and thus capable of striking most of the major cities in the Western Hemisphere, ranging as far north as Hudson's Bay, Canada, and as far south as Lima, Peru. In addition, jet bombers, capable of carrying nuclear weapons, are now being uncrated and assembled in Cuba while the necessary air bases are being prepared. This urgent transformation of Cuba into an important strategic base by the presence of these large, long-range and clearly offensive weapons of sudden mass destruction constitutes an explicit threat to the peace and security of all the Americas. In flagrant and deliberate defiance of the Rio Pact of 1947, the traditions of this nation and hemisphere, the joint resolution of the 87th Congress, the Charter of the United Nations, and my own public warnings to the Soviets on September 4th and 13th. This action also contradicts the repeated assurances of Soviet spokesmen, both publicly and privately delivered, that the arms built up in Cuba would retain its original defensive character and that the Soviet Union had no need or desire to station strategic missiles on the territory of any other nation. The size of this undertaking makes clear that it has been planned for some months. Yet only last month, month after I had made clear the distinction between any introduction of ground-to-ground missiles and the existence of defensive anti-aircraft missiles, The Soviet government publicly stated on September 11th that, and I quote, the armaments and military equipment sent to Cuba are designed exclusively for defensive purposes, unquote. That there is, and I quote the Soviet government, there is no need for the Soviet government to shift its weapons for a retaliatory blow to any other country. For instance, Cuba, unquote. And that, and I quote the government, the Soviet Union, "...has so powerful rockets to carry these nuclear warheads that there is no need to search for sites for them beyond the boundaries of the Soviet Union." Unquote. That statement was false. Only last Thursday, as evidence of this rapid offensive buildup was already in my hand, Soviet Foreign Minister Gromyko told me in my office that he was instructed to make it clear once again, as he said his government had already done, "...that Soviet assistance to Cuba," and I quote, "...pursued solely the purpose of contributing to the defense capabilities of Cuba," unquote. That, and I quote him, "...training by Soviet specialists of Cuban nationals in handling defensive armaments was by no means offensive. And that if it were otherwise," Mr. Grameco went on, "...the Soviet government would never become involved in rendering such assistance," unquote. That statement also was false. Neither the United States of America, nor the world community of nations can tolerate deliberate deception and offensive threats on the part of any nation, large or small. We no longer live in a world where only the actual firing of weapons represents a sufficient challenge to a nation's security to constitute maximum peril. Nuclear weapons are so destructive and ballistic missiles are so swift that any substantially increased possibility of their use or any sudden change in their deployment may well be regarded as a definite threat to peace. For many years, both the Soviet Union and the United States, recognizing this fact, have deployed strategic nuclear weapons with great care, never upsetting the precarious status quo which ensured that these weapons would not be used in the absence of some vital challenge. Our own strategic missiles have never been transferred to the territory of any other nation under a cloak of secrecy and deception. And our history, unlike that of the Soviets since the end of World War II, demonstrates that we have no desire to dominate or conquer any other nation or impose our system upon its people. Nevertheless, American citizens have become adjusted to living daily on the bullseye of Soviet missiles, located inside the USSR or in submarines. In that sense, missiles in Cuba add to an already clear and present danger. Although it should be noted, the nations of Latin America had never previously been subjected to a potential nuclear threat. But this secret, swift, extraordinary buildup of communist missiles In an area well known to have a special and historical relationship to the United States and the nations of the Western Hemisphere, in violation of Soviet assurances, and in defiance of American and hemispheric policy, this sudden, clandestine decision to station strategic weapons for the first time outside of Soviet soil is a deliberately provocative and unjustified change in the status quo, which cannot be accepted by this country if our courage and our commitments are ever to be trusted again by either friend or foe. The 1930s taught us a clear lesson. Aggressive conduct, if allowed to go unchecked and unchallenged, ultimately leads to war. This nation is opposed to war. We are also true to our word. Our unswerving objective, therefore, must be to prevent the use of these missiles against this or any other country and to secure their withdrawal or elimination from the Western Hemisphere. Our policy has been one of patience and restraint, as befits a peaceful and powerful nation which leads a worldwide alliance. We have been determined not to be diverted from our central concerns by mere irritants and fanatics. But now further action is required, and it is underway and these actions may only be the beginning. We will not prematurely or unnecessarily risk the course of worldwide nuclear war in which even the fruits of victory would be ashes in our mouth, but neither will we shrink from that risk at any time it must be faced. Acting, therefore, in the defense of our own security and of the entire Western Hemisphere and under the authority entrusted to me by the Constitution, as endorsed by the resolution of the Congress, I have directed that the following initial steps be taken immediately. First, to halt this offensive buildup, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba from whatever nation or port will, if found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons, be turned back. This quarantine will be extended, if needed, to other types of cargo and carriers. We are not at this time, however, denying the necessities of life, as the Soviets attempted to do in their Berlin blockade of 1948. Second, I have directed the continued and increased close surveillance of Cuba and its military buildup. The foreign ministers of the OAS, in their communique of October 6 rejected secrecy on such matters in this hemisphere. Should these offensive military preparations continue, thus increasing the threat to the hemisphere, further action will be justified. I have directed the armed forces to prepare for any eventualities, and I trust that in the interest of both the Cuban people and the Soviet technicians at the sites, the hazards to all concerned of continuing this threat will be recognized. Third. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. Fourth, as a necessary military precaution, I have reinforced our base at Guantanamo, evacuated today the dependence of our personnel there, and ordered additional military units to be on a standby alert basis. Fifth, we are calling tonight for an immediate meeting of the Organization of Consultation under the Organization of American States to consider this threat to hemispheric security and to invoke Article 6 and 8 of the Rio Treaty in support of all necessary action. The United Nations Charter allows for regional security arrangements and the nations of this hemisphere decided long ago against the military presence of outside powers. Our other allies around the world have also been alerted. Sixth, under the charter of the United Nations, we are asking tonight that an emergency meeting of the Security Council be convoked without delay to take action against this latest Soviet threat to world peace. Our resolution will call for the prompt dismantling and withdrawal of all offensive weapons in Cuba under the supervision of UN observers before the quarantine can be lifted. Seventh and finally, I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to halt and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace and to stable relations between our two nations. I call upon him further to abandon this course of world domination and to join in an historic effort to end the perilous arms race and to transform the history of man. He has an opportunity now to move the world back from the abyss of destruction by returning to his government's own words that it had no need to station missiles outside its own territory and withdrawing these weapons from Cuba by refraining from any action which will widen or deepen the present crisis and then by participating in a search for peaceful and permanent solutions. This nation is prepared to present its case against the Soviet threat to peace and our own proposals for a peaceful world at any time and in any forum, in the OAS, in the United Nations, or in any other meeting that could be useful without limiting our freedom of action. We have in the past made strenuous efforts to limit the spread of nuclear weapons. We have proposed the elimination of all arms and military bases in a fair and effective disarmament treaty, we are prepared to discuss. New
1: hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is St. Clinton, and we've come to the end of. Think it ain't illegal, yeah. We'll be back soon with a new episode, and hopefully, this episode has made you think and want to make a difference in this world. Now I'm going to turn on, for the love of poetry and spoken word, and think.
0: Thank you.